The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. This is Squawk Box and these are your headlines this Tuesday morning. The race to fill the EU's top jobs kicks off as a fragmented parliament could put France and Germany at odds over the bloc's leadership. Brussels will reportedly start action against Rome over Italy's rising debt levels as Labour leader Matteo Salvini says a big win in EU elections gives the far-right party a mandate to change budget rules. Japanese officials say Washington and Tokyo have not agreed to reach a trade deal by August despite conflicting comments from President Trump as the US leader wraps up his visit to Japan. Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba is reportedly mulling a secondary Hong Kong listing to raise as much as $20 billion after launching in the US with the world's biggest IPO in 2014. Let me take you to some of the market action. A fairly thin trade that started off the week with the U.S. out of action yesterday. And uh, some of these markets are looking for direction. One of the big news factors has been the European elections and the fact that it hasn't been a huge swing towards the populace. That's been somewhat positive for markets, including the Asian ones. What we've also had yesterday, comments while we were live on air from President Trump while he was in Tokyo, suggesting that a deal with China is not about to happen, that the Chinese want one to happen, but the U.S. is not quite ready. And that tone just causing a little bit of risk off for markets. So you can see the picture this morning. Uh, Japanese stocks are bouncing 94 points or just over four-tenths of a percent. China improving and Hong Kong up about half of a percent. But all eyes really uh, turning to what the U.S. trading day will look like later on today. Let's take a quick look at some of those European yields. The German bunds uh, hit a low on the Monday session. We saw uh, a fall into um, about uh, a low of minus 0.14 of a percent uh, is what we had on the, the bund. And you can see uh, minus 0.14 is where we sit roughly in the morning session. The 10-year Greek yield worth watching, we were perched close to that 3% mark in session. Now 3.18%, a snap election has been called, but the opposition seen as somewhat market-friendly. Spanish yield tracks just over 0.81. The Italian 10-year, that's where there was a little bit more of a news event too on the back of the European parliamentary elections with Salvini bolstering his position. 2.69%. Investors watching if there's more tension in the coalition come later on this year. Dollar crosses. Uh, early morning action uh, on the uh, foreign exchange markets. We've got the euro dollar trading weaker. Sterling also on the back foot. Uh, it's uh, trading off the 127 handle. Again, more Brexit uncertainty and leadership battles continue. Dollar yen rates at 109.54. Dollar Swissy picking up a little bit of action as well. Can I do something really boring here? Really boring. You're just going to do the opening calls, aren't you? So I've run ahead of myself we a little bit We can take a quick look at what we but, but, but it does tie into this, Karen. And um, I sat out there uh, opposite the Houses of Parliament yesterday 
um, across the four hours for our special programming, yes. Europe Votes, and I had a lot of time on my own, and I had a lot of time to think about things. <laughs> this is very rare, isn't it? Yeah, and don't, don't worry, you're not going to get some pouring out of my heart and life confession here going on. But just, we've only got three hours today, Jim. I know, I know, not, not enough. Let's have the other hour as well. But, but, but I'm just thinking about the way that the markets are responding to news and events. And it, to me, it just feels a bit complacent. So I, I've sort of looked at um, where we are. OK, you could hear the huge sigh of relief coming out of Brussels. Even I, standing on the banks of the Thames, could hear the sigh of relief around the EU election result. And then I kind of sat back and I thought, well, hang on, you haven't resolved the row with the Italian government. There is going to be a spat over the budget. Um, you haven't resolved the issue with uh, Mr Macron and the resistance he has to his reform programme. Germany, well, goodness knows, there's still this drift and we're waiting to see what AKK brings after Angela Merkel. The UK, we still are in some kind of perder, some hell reserved for uncertainty uh, because we don't know what the new leader of the Conservative Party is actually going to mean for the road to travel down towards Brexit. So I'm thinking... What did we actually resolve, apart from getting over the hurdle of the vote itself? What did we actually resolve? Well, the news flow to me is a little bit like it could have been worse when it comes to Europe. When it comes to the United States, it, it could be better. When it comes to the European side, it could be worse. Well, we could have a hard Brexit that would rattle the markets. Uh, we could have a, a very strong Brexiteer leadership already announced. That's a waiting game still in the UK. And we didn't have a huge swing towards the populace where those in the centre ground lost control. That didn't happen. So we could have been worse. But when it comes to the United States, it could be better. We could have that deal that we've been promised for many months now. And the signals that, again, came through yesterday from Trump is effectively that the deal is not going to happen in the imminent future, despite the market pushing uh, many of these numbers high. And we saw that on the, the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq and individual parts of the market, that there's been this enormous optimism. So what have we got? It's muddling in the middle. So positive and negativity almost needs to come together where there's not much of a trading pattern to, to take place. Anyway. Muddling in the middle. It's about right. We'll come back. We'll talk about Trump and Japan as well, because I'm confused. I mean, Trump said there was going to be a deal by August and the Japanese are now saying there isn't. But well, let's save that chat and we'll come back to it because we're very much focused on the EU. So the next big hurdle, I guess, is who gets the top jobs in the EU. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, and Spain's acting prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, have said the top jobs in Europe must reflect the results of the parliamentary elections. The two leaders met in Paris last night to talk about the outcome of the EU vote. Mr Macron also held a call with his German counterpart, Angela Merkel, about how the post of European Commission President should be decided. Well, let's get out to Sylvia in Brussels. And Sylvia, again, you know, we're talking about muddying the waters. If in reality they now look to select these candidates based on the election result, we're going to get a slightly different direction of travel, it seems to me, policy-wise. Well, it's really early to tell, Jeff. And the reason is because these European elections, as you mentioned, led to a fragmented European Parliament. So there's no clear party that has won these European elections. And as a result, it's really difficult to foresee if one of these uh, uh, po one of these uh, politicians that the parties put forward 
to be the next president of the European Commission will actually get this job. But today we'll have the first official discussion among the 28 European leaders and perhaps we'll get a bit more color on how they're going to decide these four top jobs. Let me remind our viewers that Europe needs a new president of the Commission, but also of the European Council, of the European Parliament, as well as of the European Central Bank. And in these discussions that are starting officially here today, the leaders will try to strike a balance between gender, nationality and political affiliation. But there is a sense of urgency, Jeff. Europe, different European leaders have said that they need to have, they need to conclude this process as soon as possible. And one of those leaders was Chancellor Merkel. We heard from her yesterday saying that the sooner these decisions are taken, the better for the EU. Both parties, the CDU, the CSU and the SPD, stand by the system of a leading candidate and we will introduce this position. The European Council will take the result of the vote into account, as is stated in the Lisbon Treaty. We want to find a solution as soon as possible, as the European Parliament will meet at the beginning of July, and it would be good if we have a proposal from the European Council, so that positions can be quickly filled after that. One thing is clear, we need to be capable of acting in the EU, and the sooner we have the decision, the better it is for the future, even if the new Commission only takes office later. So the aim is to conclude this process on June 20th. That's when the leaders will gather once again here in Brussels for a summit. And the hope is that they will be able to announce these names on that date. But I have to say that according to a European official, the discussion here tonight will only be between the 28 heads of state. There will be no advisors in the, in the room. And that's perhaps it's to avoid any names from being leaked to the press. The big elephant in these discussions, though, is indeed the Brexit. Prime Minister Theresa May is scheduled to meet the other 28 leaders. At the moment, UK is still a full member of the EU, so the representative of the United Kingdom, in this case Theresa May, has a say in these, in these discussions. However, having spoken with different officials from different capitals, the feeling is that Theresa May should abstain from having a strong say in these decisions. Later on, I'll be interviewing one of the vice presidents of the European Commission, Valdis Dombrovskis, and I'll be discussing this and as well the result of the European elections with him later today. Terrific, Sylvia. Thank you very much indeed for that. And we're looking forward to that interview to come. Uh, let's move on. Italian yields rose and bank stocks fell on reports. The European Commission is set to take disciplinary action against Italy over its rising debt levels. According to multiple reports this morning, Brussels is likely to take steps against Rome, including a potential fine for breaking EU budget rules. The Commission is due to issue reports on member countries' public finances on June the 5th. Speaking following the EU election result, Lega leader and Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini said his party's victory is a mandate to change Brussels' budget rules. Behind me is the established and definitive result that you can analyse and that allows me as Secretary of the League to maintain the commitment made with the Italian people to change the balance in Europe and to change European budgetary policies. It's even more important that should another polite letter be coming, of which I can't wait to know the contents, we will respond with the same politeness on the basis of popular consensus saying that European insecurity and unemployment closed yesterday for us and another season has begun. 
Well, let's uh, pick up with uh, Elias Haddad, uh, Senior Currency Strategist for Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Good morning, Elias. Welcome morning. very much to the programme. Let, let's just follow on from, from that lead. Um, to what extent does the euro deserve any additional support this morning on the back of the EU election outcome? I think the bottom line in terms of the implications of these uh, European elections, it's relatively supportive of the euro. Uh, we still have uh, the pro-euro parties maintaining a clear majority in the 751 seats uh, European Parliament, uh, albeit it's a bit more fragmented. And more importantly is that the Eurosceptic parties or the populist parties uh, uh, haven't really made any significant gains. Still ha they still have under 180 seats. Uh, in this uh, European uh, Parliament. So, so the bottom line here is that the, 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 the project or the, the, uh, the move towards greater Eurozone integration or the snail pace move uh, towards uh, greater Eurozone integration is intact. Uh, and that is uh, supportive for the euro. Can we talk about timing of more political turmoil? Because on the back of the uh, parliamentary elections, we've had a snap election called in Greece. There have been problems in Austria that may have been there prior to the parliamentary elections. Later on this year, the market's just taking its focus to Italy and saying, could there be potential for a snap election or more tension in the coalition? And Germany, is that now a, a ticking time bomb as well? We're down the track, we have a breakdown in the grand coalition. So mm -hmm. what would you say about the timing of the risks around the euro? That's a great question. Certainly the political dynamic in the eurozone will continue to be a bit of a, of a headwind to the euro. But it's important to remember that if you look at the polls and a lot of those, uh, the, the, the eurozone periphery, for instance, Italy, uh, and their support for the euro has actually increased. So, so the risk of a anti-euro a party coming into power, any of those European periphery has significantly, uh, significantly diminished. Now the risk in Italy is more with respect to the fiscal dynamic. Uh, certainly if we start to see a widening in the spreads between Italy and Germany, that will be a bit of a drag for the euro. But there's, there's two big factors that suggest to me that downside for the European currency is limited. Number one, uh, the Eurozone has a fairly favorable fund, uh, balance of payments backdrop. We've got a current account surplus in excess of 2% of GDP, and that is a pretty big underpinning factor here for the Euro. And secondly, um, well, the Euro, the, the Euro exchange rate is undervalued. It's cheap based on the relative measures of, uh, of, uh, of prices, whether you look at the uh, from uh, consumer prices, unit labor costs, or uh, the GDP deflator for, for that matter. So for these two reasons, uh, I think the downside for the euro is limited, despite uh, the uh, uh, political uncertainty in the eurozone. There are two, two other issues here that it seems to me are, are relevant. One is the growth profile of Europe at the moment, which is rather lackluster. And the second one is, who is the new ECB boss? And it seems to me that if you're going to take a medium to longer term view on that, you have to take a view on who you think will be the new head of the ECB. I think uh, certainly, yeah, that's, that, that's a fact. But at this stage, it's difficult to say who will be the next leader. But more importantly, I think you, you were bang on there. It's, it's the lackluster and the disappointing Eurozone growth prospect that is preventing the Euro from, from edging higher. Now, our base case scenario is for the Euro to, to, to trade higher towards 120 over the next 12 months. And the, one of the big reasons supporting our view is the fact that we, start to, we could probably start, start to see some positive uh, Eurozone economic surprises uh, over the next 12 months. I want to bring yeah. trade into the debate around Europe. We're going to talk trade more broadly in a moment. But when it comes to Europe, what flashed up in some of the analysis yesterday is that there is pretty common accord now in, in European Parliament with the pro-European parties, except on trade. 
that in the past the Greens have voted against some of their, their allies in Parliament on the trade issue and the discussions begin with the United States. Uh, where can we see that dialogue going? If the Greens push back on environmental issues, does that mean a more hardline approach then from President Trump, which we've seen in other situations? So is that a potential threat? Yeah, I mean, right now, we, I think the, the tension between the U.S. and the Eurozone and, and Europe generally on, on the trade front has been put on ice for the next uh, six months. Uh, it, it, clearly, the, the threat uh, going down the road is that tensions escalate, probably not between the U.S. and Europe, but more probably between the U.S. and China. And that is a big, uh, big downside risk to global economic activity. Now, at this stage, the U.S.-China trade tension uh, in terms of the, 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 the drag to, to, to global growth is relatively negligible. So we're talking less than 0.1% of GDP from, from a level of GDP. But the risk is that, that, uh, that those tensions escalate. And there are, there, there's, you know, Trump or the Trump administration, they have the political capital to take things to the next level on the trade front. You look at uh, the Trump administration or the Trump's popularity in a lot of the swing states, and it hasn't really deteriorated since uh, January last year when the actual trade dispute began uh, and, and you look at the uh, at Americans view with respect to uh, you know how fair or unfair China's uh, policies the trade policies are towards the US and across the political spectrum in the US most Americans by significant margin believe that China's trade policies towards the US are unfair Elias we'll come back we'll pick up in a moment on the dollar um, let's move on let's just update you on the latest out of Austria the Chancellor there Sebastian Kurz has been removed from office after losing a vote of no confidence opposition parties brought forward the motion after the leader of Kurtz's coalition partner was caught on camera offering to fix government contracts. Kurtz will be formally asked to step down at 11.30 CET with elections now expected in September. Still to come, in spite of what President Trump has tweeted, there is no timetable. Japan's economy minister has played down hopes of a trade deal with the US as the president dined with the emperor. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A quick look at the Chinese markets today, and you can see green marching back onto the boards for the Shanghai Composite, trading up about eight-tenths of a percent, well and truly off the highs from April this year, with some of the concerns still around trade issues, but stabilizing over the last month with the gains that you're seeing on the boards at these levels, uh, just shy of uh, the 3,000-point mark. Shenzhen trades up a little bit firmer than the Shanghai Composite, and you can see gains on the other major indices. Um, Alibaba, uh, this is big news. The company is reportedly considering a secondary listing in Hong Kong to raise $20 billion. According to multiple reports, the deal would take place in the second half of the year, giving the tech giant fresh capital to invest in tech. Alibaba raised a record $25 billion in its IPO on the New York Stock Exchange in 2014. Japan's economy minister has said there is no timetable for a trade deal with the U.S., but he also told reporters he promised American officials that Japan would work to address any concerns. The comments come after President Trump hinted an agreement with Tokyo would be announced in August. Uh, Sherry Kang has more on the president's visit to Japan. 
It was an opportunity for President Trump to address his domestic audience as the United States Commander in Chief while marking his Memorial Day holiday here in Japan on a state visit. He paid a visit to a U.S. naval base near Tokyo, and while he's addressing American soldiers, he used that opportunity to highlight the military solidarity with Japan. Take a listen. I want to thank my friend. And your prime minister is an extraordinary man for his commitment to improving Japan's defense capabilities, which also advances the security of the United States of America. Plus, President Trump once again highlighted Japan's intention of buying more than 100 F-35 stealth aircraft from the United States. And this is certainly a point that he can call a victory that he can bring home as well. In the meantime, remaining questions at this point as President Trump wrapped up his four-day state visit in Japan. Will he come back to Japan for G20 summit? Can the U.S. and Japan strike on a comprehensive trade deal? What will that look like and can they make it happen by the month of August? Shara Kang, CNBC, Tokyo. Chinese officials called on the U.S. to settle an ongoing trade dispute through friendly negotiations. This after President Trump told reporters during a visit to Japan that America is not ready to make a deal with Beijing. But Chinese Foreign Affairs Ministry spokesperson Liu Kang said the U.S. has not been consistent in its approach to ongoing trade talks. For a period of time, you may have noticed that the U.S. side, including some high-ranking figures, have had various sayings about the China-U.S. economic and trade consultations. Sometimes they say a deal will soon be reached. Other times they say it's difficult to reach this deal. But you can look retrospectively that during the same period, China's expressions have remained consistent. That is, first, we always believe that any differences between any two countries certainly should be settled through friendly consultations and negotiations, the China-US differences in the economic and trade field included. Secondly, we always uphold that China-US negotiations, including economic and trade negotiations, must be based on mutual respect, equality and mutual benefit. China's uh, Foreign Affairs Ministry. Huawei is reportedly reviewing its relationship with the U.S. parcel service FedEx. According to Reuters, the Chinese telecoms company says FedEx diverted several packages sent to its offices in Asia back to the U.S. without Huawei's permission. Huawei did not provide any further explanation but said the move, quote, undermines our confidence. FedEx called the complaint a, quote, isolated issue. Let's get back to Elias Haddad, a senior currency strategist at Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Let's just nail the dollar here, if we can, Elias. How much more upside do you think there might be for the dollar at this point? I think in the, in the near term, uh, the, the US dollar will remain firm against most major currencies, probably less so against the Japanese yen or the Swiss franc, as these uh, trade tensions or the risk of trade tensions uh, uh, heightened. Uh, because that's a big downside risk to global economic activity. But U.S. dollar strength will be limited and, and probably contained. And the big reason is that you look at Fed funds futures and they're still they're pricing in roughly 50 basis points of rate cuts over the next 12 months. That's roughly in line with our view. The Fed, in our view, the Fed will, will be cutting interest rates in December. And the big reason why uh, that, that supports our view and supports uh, these uh, downward revisions to U.S. Uh, interest rate expectations, as you look at uh, inflation expectations in the U.S., um, and, and they've, they've been drifting lower. 
so, so clearly raising concerns that the Fed will, will struggle uh, to keep inflation anchored towards 2%. In fact, this week, on uh, this later this week, we have the policy-relevant U.S. Uh, core PCE deflator that comes out, and that's expected to slow or to, to, to remain relatively muted at 1.6%. So for these reasons, it's unlikely you'll see a material upward revisions to rate expectations in favor of the dollar, and that will keep the dollar strength contained. Can I test the theory around potential sure. for rate cut? Because if you look at where some of the assumptions are around growth in the States, if you get a deal done with China, you've got uh, the uh, other deals in place, the USMCA, you might have a US growth rate that gets lifted close to the 4%. The administration's been targeting those sort of levels. In that context, if there is a trade deal, Aren't those uh, assumptions of a rate cut just going to simply disappear? I would say so, yeah. I think if we do have some kind of trade deal, if any of those, the, the downside risk to global economic activity dissipate, then certainly the risk of, uh, of, of uh, a Fed rate cut would diminish. But it's not just about the trade, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the trade the issue in the U.S., one of the reasons behind uh, the expectations for rate cut, but it's because U.S. inflation is muted. And also, if you look at the signal from the yield curve in the U.S., it's, it's pointing towards softer U.S. economic activity, regardless of whether you're going to have uh, a trade deal between the U.S. and China. So for these reasons, uh, yes, the risk, if we do have a trade deal, the risk of a rate cuts in the U.S. would diminish, but there will still be uh, a, a clear and, and present danger uh, in our view uh, over the next 12 months. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.